Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the official EstablishTheRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan. I'm one of the co-founders here at ETR. And today we have a very, very special guest. This is a young man who's made his living betting on sports for the last decade. He's the confirmed, undisputed third best sports better in the world, as we found out at the sadly controversial DraftKings Sports Betting National Championship. He has a dog's name, as he's often reminded by Jeff Ma. Of course, it is Rufus Poobot, P- Rufus Peabody. Rufus, how's it going? Uh-oh, Rufus Peabody. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, Jeff is never going to let that go. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Um, okay, if you're interested in Rufus's background, uh, I interviewed Rufus about a year ago on Daily Fantasy Edge Pod. If you go to episode 261, you can hear about that. Uh, how he went to my arch rival T.C. Williams High School. I went to W.T. Woodson, and uh, their school embarrassed us repeatedly. You can hear about how Rufus uh, went to Yale and then wasted his genius brain and Yale degree by betting on sports every day for the last uh, uh, 10 years. Um, but anyways, episode 261, if you want to hear about that. Today... I, I would say I, I did the best I could with my brain, which is in a smaller market, you know... Uh, I couldn't cut it with the big boys, so I had to go to sports betting. <laughs> uh, anyways, we're going to skip all that background stuff today and mostly focus on on some current uh, issues. Again, if you want the background, episode 261 on Daily Fantasy Edge. I want to start with uh, a little bit of Corona stuff. I haven't talked about Corona on here at all because uh, I'm just not a scientist. I am not a doctor. I don't really have any hot Corona takes. I, I did find it um, super interesting that so many DFS guys and so many sports betting guys, you know, for, well, first of all, they, they think they're experts all of a sudden in esports and stock trading and oil futures and, you know, Russian ping pong and epidemiology too. Right. But I, I get it to some degree. Like if you have experience taking a set of data and modeling it, well, you can do that in theory with anything. So, uh, I'm curious if you had, thoughts of trying to model Corona, what you thought of all the people in the sports betting and DFS community that were coming out with all their takes based on the models that they were trying to do with Corona. And I also found it interesting that like the public, this is like a lot of people didn't even know what, you know, uh, statistical modeling was, and now they see it and how it's affecting uh, kind of policy and stuff like that with Corona. So I'm just curious to get your take on on how all that went in the community. Well, the problem now is that if the like the models don't the models don't go as forecasted, which they're all probabilistic forecasts anyway. Um, people are starting to dismiss models in general, statistical mm-hmm. modeling. But um, first off, though, thank you for having me back. Um, I, I love Establish the Run. I thought you guys, what you guys are doing is absolutely fantastic. The content's great. Um, it really, it actually helped me get second in my fantasy football league. And I'm go. not the best fantasy football player. I, I tend to uh, overvalue my own players, and and um, and I don't wake up at 4 a.m. to get the first free agents after the waiver wire, um, after waivers have cleared like other people in my league. So, um, but establish the run is, is fantastic. And appreciate um, you. Yeah. Um, regarding coronavirus, um, I think it's a lot easier to criticize models than it is to model yourself. And I think I've firmly been in that camp. Um, it's, it's, it looks like it's a lot of work, but I think there are some lessons from trying to model coronavirus or seeing other people model coronavirus. Um, I think the first one is you need to know what question you're answering. So is the model projecting what's going to happen if there is, if there are social distancing measures in place, if governments just continue to, you know, take a laissez-faire approach or which, you know, that was back in March or something. Um, You know, so 
just saying, oh, this is what's going to happen. Like it's, well, what are the assumptions behind that? Um, the second, and I think this is really important, is to understand the data you're working with. Uh, so similar to sports, you need to contextualize it. Data coming out of China is not the same as data coming out of the U.S. And there's different states in the U.S. that are testing people under very different criteria. So um, in some cases, more people being tested. Um, I mean, we know that as more people are tested, there's more confirmed positive cases. But in some case, in some states, maybe um, more people being tested is as a result of more people actually getting sick. And, and in others, it might be just that there are more tests available. So there's things like that. Um, and that's very similar to sports. I mean, if if you're, you know, if you were looking um, just at raw, like, box score data, the stats, like, for NFL last year, and you saw that San Francisco-Washington game um, in the rain that was, I think there was, like, maybe 10 points total scored, and, and it was just ugly. You'd think, wow, these are really bad offenses and really good defenses. Like, Redskins, all-star defense right there. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it was, like, pouring down rain and 25 mile an hour winds. And so um, you need to put it in context and you got to do the same thing with the data. But I think with coronavirus, the problem is it's just so hard because we don't, there's so much we don't know. We don't know what actually is going on in China. We don't know or Russia or some of these countries that, you know, they have incentives to make themselves look good. Um, and so, and I mean, that's, that's an issue in the U S too. I mean, I saw someone in Florida um, who was sort of in charge of the sort of data system there got got fired because she didn't want to censor the data. So, I mean, I think every, you know, um, so I think it's, it's really hard. So you have to, you'd have to make a lot of assumptions. Um, and then the third thing I'd say is uh, your modeling choices need to make logical sense. So if you, if you decide to fit something with a local polynomial, like that sort of cubic model that has been widely panned, um, you know, and then extrapolate from that, that doesn't really make a ton of sense. Um, it just, um, well, <laughs> not to get all nerdy, but just the local polynomial. I mean, you're basically fitting all these little curves, but then it's saying, well, we're going to continue this last one out in this direction. And, and I know, uh, some, I forget who it was on Twitter, but someone said with their cubic model, they, they, they showed that they modeled the Bills to win 17 games this season <laughs> and some other team to win negative number of games based on their previous season wins total. So, I mean, it doesn't make sense to extrapolate there. But so your modeling choice is just, should ha should need to make logical sense. Like you don't need to be able to, you don't need to be able to, I don't know, write some proof of why this regression works, but you need to intuitively understand the methodology you're using and sort of what it should be used for. Yeah. And I, I think what's the, what you mentioned about assumptions is like, I think about it in football all the time because like, you know, people uh, made fun of me or were critical of me for playing teams that are you know, I'm like the only one posted in the, in the high stakes lobby playing teams that are quote unquote, you know, five points off optimal, right? And my thing is you're basing what is quote unquote optimal off of a set of assumptions that I might not agree with, right? Because you, you're um, using like, you know, Josh Jacobs uh, target share at a place where I disagree with it. And then all of a sudden it's super sensitive. You know, if I reduce that by uh, 50% or if I reduce it by even 30%, then all of a sudden what I have is optimal and, and what you have isn't so is there a way when you're modeling i guess to make it not so sensitive with coronavirus with with football with everything you know it just seems like that's a huge thing that i see is that uh if i change this one little thing all of a sudden i'm getting completely different outcomes that's a really good point you make and i think it it, it really gets to understanding the uncertainty in something and what's driving it 
And so if you change certain assumptions with coronavirus modeling, you see deaths change from like, you know, 100,000 to like 500,000, right. you know, and that's, you know, so understanding sort of in terms of the orders of magnitude. Um, and so honestly, when I model stuff, um, I will sometimes try to like, especially with football, like running season simulations or something like that, the NFL, I might, you know, um, I might tweak a parameter and then rerun things and sort of see how it shakes out because you want to know sort of, you want to know where your edge comes from or wh why you're getting a result you are and sort of how sensitive it is. Um, and, and I think it's, it's huge for, for DFS obviously, and for, for fantasy and for prop betting um, because there are a lot of foundational assumptions there. And especially when you have an, when you have injuries or in someone stepping into a new role when you, where you, you know, nobody really knows exactly, I mean, exactly what role someone might play. And so, mm -hmm. um, so I think you can get, yeah, you can get a quite, a, quite a wide variety of, uh, of results based on that. And what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I mean, you want, you're capitalizing, you want to create leverage based on, um, what you think is optimal and, and the differences between that and what everybody else thinks. So, um, so I like your strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's been 10 weeks without sports. Uh, what have you been up to? Has it been useful for you at all? Have you filed for unemployment? I mean, what's, what's been going on for the last uh, 10 weeks? I don't know. It, would I be allowed to file for unemployment? There was like a case in Vegas. They were, I mean, I couldn't believe it. They were letting like professional poker players who I guess had a history of, you have to document that you were winning on your taxes for the last few years to file for unemployment, which seemed crazy, but, but you know. I guess they could say, you know, you're not unemployed. You can bet on Belarusian ping pong or whatever. So <laughs> bet on, you know, I bet on Jonathan Bale's pushups. So I'm disqualified. <laughs> um, I've, so it's been at the beginning, well, at the beginning, it was, it was a little bit of, it was a little nice to have a little bit of a break. Um, I have a lot of things that I've wanted to work on, but just haven't really had time to. But the problem is it's just been really, really hard to be efficient during this time. Mm -hmm. I think, I don't know why it is maybe just because I, I'm basically stuck in one place and, um, but what if, for whatever reason, it's been hard to get that sort of mindset to be really productive. I've gone through some, you know, I've, I've had some spurts of, of productivity and, and right now, I mean, um, I'm, I'm, I've been a little more productive. Um, I'm working on some stuff with golf, with, with NFL. I'm, I'm finally starting to take a look at, at next season. And, and I have a few other sort of, um, business venture things that are in the works that I'm, I'm spending some time on, but, um, it's, but you know, the, the nonprofit, the American betters coalition, um, that's kind of on pause. We can't, we can't launch right now. I mean, nobody has money to fund anything right now. <laughs> it would, mm -hmm. you know, so, um, mostly, you know, I'm, I'm, I still have plenty of work to do and it's, I'm not any less busy. I'm just, uh, it's just, there aren't, there aren't the negative consequences of, there aren't deadlines. That's the problem. So. Yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, God, deadlines create all action just for, for everything. Um, all right. I want to move into kind of what the uh, sports money space looks like now versus couple years ago before Pasco was repealed, before all these states had legalized sports betting. I'm curious if your life, if your work has changed at all over the last two years since the United States, or at least some states have been open for business in terms of sports betting. So it hasn't changed as much as, as you would have thought, um, at least, or not in the way I think people would expect. I think the biggest change for me, I guess, well, it's sort of brought what I'm doing out of the shadows and it's become more socially acceptable. And there are now 
sports betting businesses in the United States. I mean, like, I guess Action Network um, launched before PASPA was repealed, mm-hmm. but I mean, yep. they're, you know, they, they obviously benefited from that. Um, and then the other big change has just been the fact that I've done a lot more media stuff um, in the last, I guess, what is it, the last two years for sure, um, which I don't know how much, I think a lot of that does have to do with the fact that there's more appetite for sports betting content now. I mean, you have Visa and you have like, you have a lot of, I mean, you have all these different um, sort of affiliate sites like the US bets and legal sports report and all that, that are providing sports betting content. Um, so, and, and I guess there's not a lot of, um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of people out there that um, I guess do what I do publicly or, and help. I was not public for, for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. But I think for me, I mean, just having that sort of the, the, the Massey Peabody um, analytics, the, the rating systems that we um, developed um, started back in 2010. I think that I guess has given me some sort of um, track record, but it wasn't really intentional. Um, yeah. I mean, no, I, I think people assume that all of a sudden you're going to find all these extremely soft lines. You're going to get to bet so much more because it's legal in the United States now. I don't think people realize, and we'll get to the ecosystem and and your problems with the European model and all that in a minute here. But I think people assume that all of a sudden it's just like so much easier for you to print money because it's legal in the United States. I just, I'm just not sure that's the case unless maybe I'm wrong. I think there are there are plenty of soft lines out there. The problem is being able to get down there and right. not get tossed or limited. Right. So. Um, you know, there, there are opportunities, obviously you need to be in, in the particular States, um, to bet there. So, um, the fact that I'm spending a good amount of time now in Boston, um, doesn't really help me there, but you know, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, I still I have a network of people and all that, but it's, um, and so there are, there are opportunities that, that are coming out of it, but, um, but I think that it's interesting. I mean, I've heard arguments from people that that the market is going to become less efficient now because you're going to have more public bet action. I tend to think, honest, I think that that easier access to sports betting um, from people who might not have bet uh, been interested in betting otherwise. You know, I think there's a good per, like portion of smart people out there, um, some nerds out there who might uh, who might say, well, well, look, there's all these opportunities. It's something that's legal that might not have looked at it before. Yeah. You know, they don't want to find a street bookie. They don't want to, you know use Bovada or whatever. And so, um, but I I think the markets are going to get more efficient. um, But I do think there are, there are opportunities along the way for sure. Yeah. I mean, that was my thing. And I was wrong. You know, I thought that anybody who wanted to bet was betting already, right? It was so easy to fire up an offshore account or to find a street bookie. I thought if you wanted to bet, you're betting already. But it's just anecdotally, it seems like there's way more interest and there's way more people betting now just because it's legal. It's like, I don't really see what the difference is. I guess I do to, to some degree, but man, there's definitely uh, more people interested. And I know like, I mean, I listen to, I bet the process is probably like the only podcast that I actually listen to every single, I don't miss any episodes for. And it seems you don't, like you don't just have to say that. Adam. No, you don't, I'm really, you don't I'm get really, bonus points. I'm really not. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I feels like you guys are getting bigger. Uh, the podcast is getting, getting bigger on the heels of, of legalization too. So it just seems like that's the case. I, don't know I think true, I think it certainly helped, but I think it's also. I mean, we we've definitely grown, um, but I think that there's just. I feel like we have more of a vocal group of people that follow it. I guess some, but it's still I think such a niche podcast, though. I mean, I yeah. think that there's. I, I don't know how. I don't know what the sort of growth potential is for something like that. Um, just you know, I've, it's not nothing like what you guys are doing in Establish the Run. 
Yeah. Well, obviously, there's way more people that play fantasy football than want to talk, you know, kind of in a nerdish way about uh, betting on sports. You know, it just is what it is. But that said, you know, the people who are into it are super, super, super into it. And I think um, that shows for sure. Uh, Speaking of the podcast, you've been outspoken on the podcast about exposing quote unquote touts in in the sports betting world, right? Like you went after Schwimmer and all that. I, I get it. I do. And I think people appreciate it. What I always wanted to interject, whenever you were arguing with Jeff and, and then about it, what I wanted to say is, shouldn't there be, and maybe you disagree, shouldn't there be some level of personal responsibility, right? Like some people need to just have accountability. Like if you're dumb enough to pay for a ping pong play from Vegas Dave, like don't you just deserve to go bust though? Like is it really up to you or me or us to protect these people from giving their money to Vegas Dave? No, I, I think you make a good point, but I do think it's a slippery slope too. Let's say someone calls you and um, says they're the IRS and you owe money, like, and you're, you know, my, you're my 96 year old grandma. And she's like, oh my God, you know, this didn't happen, but um, you, you know, and, and, and sends money. I mean, is, is, does she deserve to lose that money? I mean, you could say, well, yeah, she was dumb enough to, you know, she was dumb enough to believe this person. But I mean, at the same time, I mean, I think that um, I think you need to do what you can to sort of protect the people that that are the, the vulnerable people, people that are gullible, and people. And, and the thing is, you and I understand this industry. We've we've you know been around it for a long time. But I do think there's a lot of people that don't understand what is and isn't possible in yeah. sports betting. I mean, hell, bef- you know, there's people that think, oh, you can win 80% of the time or that some games are fixed. And this person ha- like actually knows that the game's fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to buy picks from them. And so I, I think people, I think you learn quickly or you should learn quickly, hopefully um, from buying picks that, wow, you know, this person actually won half of their picks yet. They're still proclaiming that they're on this like nine and two heater or something. And mm-hmm. you know, something doesn't feel right here. But I think what I want to, so what I want to do is just educate people. Although the problem is the people that I'm educating are the people that, well, the, the people that are listening to bet the process or follow me on Twitter probably, you know, are not the people that are going to be buying um, picks from touts that say they hit 80% anyway. So, right. um, but in general, I mean, I think what, what the average, um, what the average person may not understand is that, the economics don't really work for selling picks unless you're not, a, unless you don't provide value in mm-hmm. selling picks. It's, it's a marketing game. It really is. Cause if you provide value with your picks, you're going to be moving lines and your average customer, they see the pick, you know, it is already going to move because you'll have people out there. Um, people with the trading sophistication of a spanky or something that'll have a bot that'll be able to automatically, um, bet that game immediately when the picks released. And if you're getting sloppy seconds, you're not going to be, uh, you're not going to be profitable. So, I mean, it, it, um, and you know, I think, I think you've seen like right angle sports, which is one of the, um, one of the only sort of honest guys out there in that space, in my view, um, you know, they've run into pro it's, it's very difficult for them to actually, it, to, you can't really scale something like that because, you know, and they've gone to great lengths to try to, um, to try to make it so that, their subscribers are able to get down at their release prices, but it's, it is super difficult. And and I don't think they would be doing this if they didn't get other benefits from it. Yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. And and that's why, I mean, we're going to talk about some peer to peer stuff in a minute, but I think, I mean, for me, I've always been way more into the peer to peer poker and DFS than I am trying oh, yeah. to beat a market like sports betting for I mean, the reasons that you said, I mean, the peer to peer stuff is just so much 
uh, uh, better to me. Um, you mentioned, I love peer-to-peer. Yeah. I think it's the future. Right. And I, I do want to talk about that in a second in relation to the DK Sports Bank thing. I did want to stick with one more thing about the ecosystem. Like you've been uh, obviously outspoken about the business model, kind of employed by William Hill and Canby and, and these other European model books. And the model, as Rufus alluded to, is essentially if you show any sign of being sharp at all, like any sign, you're limited to like $10 a bet or you're banned altogether. And I know that Jeff, you know, your co-host Jeff Ma is kind of sick of this conversation, right? And I, I get where he's coming from. You know, they're running a business. They only want donkeys in there, you know, betting on parlays and favorites and overs. And and that's why they're happy to pump up stories like parlay pats and, and all the other nonsense, all these other big parlays that hit. So I do see that side of it for them, right? It's just easier. It's just less risky to only take square money. I think the point that you make is the best one, though. Like, you know, the books are costing themselves so much action by assuming someone is sharp too quick. Like I am not sharp at all at betting sides, but I bet some props, I bet some WNBA. And next thing you know, I can't bet like anywhere more than $10 just because like, like I can't even, I know nothing about MMA and now I'm limited to $10 betting an MMA side. I was just looking for a sweat like last week because I happened to bet some props and some WNBA. But anyways, I guess my main point is that they're losing out on like the aspirational thing, right? Like people want to say, hey, I want to really get really good at this like Rufus. But the problem is if I do get really good at this, I'm not even gonna be able to bet. So like I, I see both sides of it. Um, I'm not sure what there is to do about it though because I don't see a lot of these European, no matter how much we complain, they're just gonna you know, uh, say their side of the story, which is you know, a lot of it's not true and I'm not sure it's gonna change <laughs> at all. Yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna say it's all false. Right. Every, all, all these people are liars. You shouldn't trust them about anything. What, yeah, what, do so they I, do, what, do, what do they do for society? They gamble. <laughs> yeah, so I, don't really, I, I don't really have a question, but I, I don't know. I, I know that Jeff is sick of talking to you about it. I just wanted to give you one more chance to talk about it. And, and I know you're in favor of the of the uh, exchange system. I just think that we're probably further away from that than than you want, unfortunately. Well, the exchange thing, I think part of it is just legal hurdles. With the Wire Act, it's it's, you know, until the wire act comes down, it's not going to be a really viable business model um, either. I mean, I think potentially on sort of the B2B side, it could be valuable in terms of offloading risk. Um, but overall, I mean, I do think, so I think that it makes sense. I mean, books, these books are private businesses. So there's the argument that they should be able to restrict um, who does and doesn't bet. And just like um, any other business, and that makes sense. But um and, and personally, I do think they're costing themselves money by not, um, as you said, by, by actually limiting people that may not be winners. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of people that are better than coin flippers, but not good enough to actually win. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I, I think you're not only losing the business, but you're, I think there's some that lost to loss in terms of branding as well. Um, but, but so I think the whole free market argument I think that's justifiable, but the thing is sports betting in the United States is not a free market. Um, the government is deciding how many licenses are available and who gets those licenses. And so, um, so I think to me, and I don't know, obviously legally, um, how this would hold up, but, it, but to me, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem fair. Um, like what about in a, st- a state like New Hampshire where DraftKings has monopoly? If they say, um, we don't want your action on, you know, beyond $5 on insert bet type here, um, where are you going to bet it? You can't. I mean, it's almost as if like um, a, you know, a drug company develops some drug or, or, and 
they're the only ones that have it. And they say, you know what, you might have this disease, but we're not, you know, we've decided we don't want, um, we don't want blonde haired people to have this drug because we have brown hair or I don't know. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's, I mean, I, I think that obviously, um, that's not an exact parallel or anything like that, but I mean, um, I, to me, it seems like if the government's involved in that kind of that whole sort of free market justification is, um, doesn't really, doesn't really fly as much, but overall I do. So I'm a proponent of the sort of the, the pinnacle model of, of take on all comers, use the information you get from sharp betters to be able to have a good, make a, a sharp price and be able to sort of, um, entice arbitrage action, um, with, recreational books to, to pump up volume. Um, and I think it's a difficult model to make work. And I know there's a, there's a lot of people out there that disagree with me on this, I think. But I, my point is that um, I think that there is an underserved population of betters. And I think that's what you could cap, that's what you need to capitalize on. And, and honestly, like the real in the future, I think an exchange model is the best. I mean, because let's say, I mean, look, I want to bet, let's say I want to bet 50,000 on some NFL side, um, but I've been booted out of all these other places. And there's somebody else that wants to bet 50,000 on the other side. And he's not allowed to bet in these places either. Like it, it, it just boggles my mind that somehow we're not able to do a transaction there. Right. Yeah. Because it's oh, not I, like all sharps are on the same side, right. every bet. So, I mean, to me, it just like, it just, just logically, I'm like, how, like, it just doesn't make sense. Like, yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah, it is what it is. But yeah, obviously, if you've ever been to like the counter at William Hill and stuff like that, you can tell that they're not they're not ready to uh, to take on the pinnacle model. I know that's not the guys making decisions, but still, it's it's still funny down there. Um, but I, I do think like I think I'm very bullish on Circa uh, and yeah. what they're doing. We had Matt Metcalf on Bet the Process um, last week, and he's Matt. Matt is Matt is very sharp. Um, he was a professional better as well before. Um, mm-hmm. He was a bookmaker, then a better, then a bookmaker again, and and. Um, he, he believes very much in that model because um, yep. he, he wants to book the way he, he, you know, he, he wants his book to cater to, to be, well, he books like a better, basically, you yeah. know, he wants an experience that, that he wants to have a book that he would want to bet at. And yeah. so, but he also made the point that he doesn't want to lose money. Right. So he can, yeah. he can take the sharpest action and still make money. It's just the way that you do it and the way you use the information that you get, I think, but that's a sophisticated person running the book and. You know, a lot of people would argue a lot of people running these books aren't nearly as sophisticated as Matt. Um, okay, I wanted to mention DK Sportsbank. It's so funny. You know, I mentioned, I was just joking, obviously, on Twitter. I said, you know, confirmed, uh, undisputed, third best sports better in the world. That was a reference to the DK Sports Betting Championship. In the United on Twitter, States, right? In the United States. And, you know, these people on Twitter, there's obviously so many trolls in the sports betting uh, <laughs> Twitter. They're like, he's he's not the third best sports. <laughs> uh, all we were joking about is, uh, and I was in it too, uh, the, uh, I guess it was called the DraftKings Sports Betting National Championship. Rufus finished third. Unfortunately, it was controversial in the end because Rufus didn't get his bets graded in time to make uh, a bet that could have allowed him to win first place but third place was still a nice payday uh it's sad that it, it's really sad to me that it ended controversially because i thought it was an awesome 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 event like this is the way sports betting actually interests me i'm really not that interested in in betting sides and stuff like that but this peer-to-peer and kind of tournament style stuff uh that DraftKings did basically you got five thousand dollars and whoever ran it up the highest at the end won the tournament and i thought it was really cool 
Uh, I'm curious, just I know you had a bad experience at the end, but what do you think of that event as a whole? And is there room? I know there's room. Do you have any other ideas for other cool peer-to-peer stuff that these platforms could offer? I loved the event overall, obviously, um, or, or the idea of it. You know, obviously, my experience at the end, um, I wasn't happy with that, but uh, but I think it was a fantastic idea. Although I do think there are going to be issues, um, or I, I do think there are issues in terms of um, the potential for collusion. I mean, I know mm-hmm. people. I know I found out later that there was, you know, I was up against some groups of like ten or more entries together, and and I and I know some of these people were like. Um, you know, they, they were going to have another, uh, they were going to have a DraftKings spring sports betting championship back in, back in March. And I was approached by some people being like, Hey, do you want to join up? You know, you know, and, and that the thing is, I wasn't going to enter this year for the reason that I don't want to, I don't want to, um, I feel like it's, you know, I don't want to be in one of these groups, um, just because I, you know, that that's against everything I stand for. Right? I mean, yeah, I, I want, against, I want, I want it, it to was, be a fair playing field. And yeah, the thing and is, it's I against like terms it, of service too. Yeah. Yeah. It's against the terms of service, but how do you enforce something like no, that? No, I know you can't, you know, and I reached out, um, I reached out to John Aguiar about it and he was like, you know, we're, we're, you know, we were investigating these things, blah, blah, blah. Like if you have, you can give an anonymous tip or whatever. I'm not going to do that, but, um, <laughs> right. no, I'm not, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but, but <laughs> like, I understand people are trying to exploit the edges, you know, and there's, honestly the ethical line is different for different people and um but i think to me if you know i think if you want to create a system that basically makes it so that that doesn't come into play right Right. and and so it's just it's it's gonna it's so hard to sort of figure out that collusion like you could have 10 people that are friends that enter and don't have and they don't look at each other's entries they just want to split variants that's one thing but if you're if you're saying hey i'll hit this side i'll hit you know i'll play this big underdog you you play this big other underdog you play the other big underdog and then i'll parlay the three favorites together you know one of those is going to be a really you know is going to hit big yeah. right and so as an individual um you're at a big disadvantage against a group acting you know making a concerted effort together like that um, so the question is, how do you deal with something like that? Because I do think the, the idea, the, the event was great. I mean, I think the, like it, it, it is, there's game theory. It's like, I mean, it's, it's, I love games and mm-hmm. it's, I mean, there's, you know, different, I mean, different approaches and, you know, I'm sure were you, you weren't in it, were you? I was, yeah. You were. Okay. Yeah. But did your, I mean, was, did your strategy evolve? I mean, did you go in with a particular, one particular strategy and, and stick to it or did you sort of change based on what everybody else was doing. Yeah, I think I thought too much about what everybody else was doing. And maybe maybe that's right. I don't know. I, I have the same issues in, in DFS as I do with in the tournament. I was just like, you know, I start, I know what's a good bet. I know when I was beating the market and like when there were late scratches in NBA where you could have gotten player props off at a really good price and stuff like that. And I was like, well, everybody's going to have that. So there's not really a lot of upside in, in taking it. But in hindsight, like I should have just been trying to like run up money early and then thought more about game theory at the end. I, I think was maybe right. I don't know though. I was surprised that you didn't have more people just trying to risk it. Like basically put all $5,000 down at like something that was like 50 to one, you know, and just try to well, win it with but one. But I bet. think the problem was DraftKings wasn't taking those bets at that right. size. I, I don't yeah. think they were allowing something that would win $250,000, unfortunately. Right. Um, which if it was, if it was, if the game was play money, you know, if it was just like tournament money, like world series of poker or something like that, um, then it would be a little more interesting from a game theoretical perspective. But I think the fact that you got to actually keep your bankroll as a live bankroll 
um, did create opportunities because I think there was some risk aversion that came into play for some oh, people. Yeah. But Big the way time. the the way the the way the prize pool was structured, though, it it made sense to, you know, the the EV was was going for first. Yeah. Um, I- a lot of people tried to like double up, you know, like get it all in, get it all in, get it all in, and then try to like get a roll that way. But, but yeah, I don't know. There were so many different strategies. I don't know. I hate the way I, I played it. I mean, I, I liked the way I played it, but obviously I got lucky too. Yeah. Well, of course that's everything. Yeah. A, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what you're trying to do. Yeah. Right. Um, but in regards to the collusion thing, I mean, I think that some people have drawn a parallel with, um, or you could draw a parallel with what's going on in DFS in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, in what the bachelor contest, bachelorette can, whatever it was, um, yeah. contestant and bachelor gate. Yeah. Bachelor gate. Um, to me, I don't uh, like, I, I understand why I understand how bad the optics are, but to me, like look, the DFS thing, I mean, you know, sure. Okay. There's a limit of a hundred what is it? 150. 150. Yeah. yeah, 150, yeah. Um, you know, my first, like if I'm entering in one of these tournaments, my first entry is going to have the most expected value. My second entry is going to have less expected value than that. And, and it's going to keep going down. And, and like, I mean, if you, you know, and if you think about it, if you had every entry in a contest, you'd be paying the rake. Right. right. So, so in, in reality, it's actually, I, I think a, I mean, you are not your, I guess, expectation, your ROI is going to go down the more entries you have. Right. Um, so I don't think that there is that sort of, um, I don't think there's, yes, there's a benefit. If you're good, if, if you're, if you're a winner, you're able to get more money down. So yeah. that's, and, and I know that DraftKings and FanDuel are trying to make the ecosystem friendly for, um, for recreational betters or what are DFS, recreational DFSers, <laughs> <laughs> the minnows, if you will. <laughs> and so, um, and, and that's why you have those limits. But at the same time, I mean, I don't, to me, it's not, it's, and so that does matter, but I don't think to the degree, it, um, I don't think no. it, you have the sort of same fairness issue, or at least to the same level as you would with a contest like yeah. um, like the DK Sports Betting Championship. Yeah, the number of combos is just so high, and I, I would be willing to bet against... 99.9% of DFS players, they can, that their 300th lineup, that their 250th lineup is actually going to be plus EV. I think it, it, <laughs> the, the conversation is uh, a little bit different. I think if you say, well, all the money's in first place. So if I can fire in 300 entries, yeah, my overall expectation is lower, but my chances of getting first, uh, like just like randomly being first are actually better, right? I, I don't know. I guess it's like the not having duplicate lineups, right? Right. But, but yeah. Um, Okay. Anyways, I want to get into some actual uh, betting stuff that hopefully I can use and hopefully people can use. One of my favorite uh, recent episodes was when you guys talked about your Super Bowl props and and how you uh, got to those, how you bet and everything. I, I think kind of like the um, simplest way, the props 101 way would just be to get a median projection on everybody's stats. You know, Raheem Mostert's rushing yards is this. And if I find it's X percent off of this, I'm going to bet it. Um, I assume that your process for betting props is more sophisticated than that in terms of finding a range of outcomes over a lot of simulations for a player, or maybe it's not, but can you give the people any insight on, on how to bet props in a more sophisticated way? So it's interesting. You talk about the median projections. And so I I actually tend to target a mean projection and then I translate it to a median. Um, but because I'm projecting a bunch of 
I'm basically project like it's sort of well I guess it's it's both tops down and bottoms up in a way um, it's bottoms up in the fact that it's using the micro level data but it's tops down in, in the fact that like if I'm trying to project Raheem Mostert rush attempts first I'm projecting how many plays um, sure. the team's gonna have which is gonna be based on like micro level data but then and then what percentage of pass and rush um, and all that kind of stuff and, and and getting down to and then what's Raheem Mostert's you know share of running back rushes, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think there's a, a lot of different approaches you can take to it. Um, I've, I've basically stuck with, I guess, one general approach. I mean, I've made lots of changes over the years. Um, these days I'm not betting props except for the Super Bowl. It's just, it's just very labor intensive. Um, yeah. because so, so I would say where you can get an edge is some of the stuff that, that you can't really model. Um, right. I mean, like you can, you can, I guess have a, framework for analyzing it um but like dealing with injuries that's the biggest thing like if let's say if michael thomas was injured for a game for the saints like what happens to the you know do more balls go to the tight end just taste some hill play more like and and that's the kind of thing where you can kind of i mean i think under knowing football um can matter a lot but at the same time um i found like at the same time if if everybody, if, if you're able to sort of dissect it and figure out what the saints were going to do, then their opponent would be able to do that too. So at the same time, maybe, you know, Sean Payton's probably not, you might want to keep them guessing. So, I mean, you can just, you can go so deep with some of these things. Um, sure. And I think, um, I don't know if you wanted to, I don't know if you were, um, if you wanted me to talk about any t- like specific type of prop, but um, I mean, I think the biggest thing is, is kind of, is, looking i mean understanding the distributions of the things you're you're dealing with um if it's like number of field goals or number of receptions or whatever um how the mean and median are different generally you know if yeah. i have um most are projected for you know mean of 40 rushing yards um his median is going to be lower than that right um, yeah because, i, I, I want it's going to come from the big rush well the really long rushes but yeah exactly i wanted to to ask you about that because i think that's a huge mistake that people don't understand is medium versus mean what what should we be using for our player props you said you use mean but it shouldn't median be more right, effective so, so when you're betting these yardage I'm, props and stuff i'm projecting like i have a projection that projects out the mean but but you're right like what i'm, I'm placing my bets based off of medians i guess what i'm saying is that i'm not going the intent is not to model the median like I'm not going through and saying, okay, you know, um, Michael Thomas went over, you know, he might've averaged, you know, 90 yards, but he, you know, he went, the median, the median was, his median was 83 though. Right. I'm still basing things generally off the fact that his average is 90, but in reality, what I'm doing is, um, is, is running simulations and saying, okay, this is, um, you know, in this simulation, he had three, he had three receptions that went for 51 yards and this other one. So, so it ends up like, and if, if, if you can nail those distributions, right, because there's going to be games when he, there's going to be a game when he has like 17 receptions or something. Yeah. Um, then if you can get that right, then it'll sort of, it'll be reflected in the simulations. Um, the, the difficult thing there is trying to figure out uh, injury probabilities. And that's something that I've thought a little bit about um, more about sort of modeling that in, in recent years, but haven't really, I mean, it, haven't really settled on, on the best way to do it. I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, obviously some players are more injury prone than others, but I don't have, I, I can't, I don't have the data to sort it, it to model that. You know, yeah. I think. Cause oh, it's, I mean, it's super hard, but one thing you can say, I, I think, I mean, I try to lean unders, like it kind of pains me to bet like overs on a lot of these 
yardage props and reception props. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I feel like that's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's, but I feel like injury in-game injuries are not factored in. And also, as you said, medians always gonna be lower than mean. And a lot of these books are just putting up props. Like they'll just take Michael Thomas's average the last 10 games. And that's their, that's their line. And they're not even thinking about median or context uh, or anything. So I try to find mostly unders uh, when I can. The problem is on a lot of these injury things, I find myself taking overs, right? So like you said, if a star player goes out, a lot of times I find myself on overs on the backup and, and that's not always, doesn't always feel the best. Well, there's upside, right? I mean, you're right. Like overall unders like, or 90 plus percent unders and no's uh, of my prop action is yeah. right. Um, but you're right. Like there are, you know, an injury can only hurt Michael Tom- It can hurt Michael Thomas. It can't help him. Um, right. If I guess if Alvin Kamara gets injured, it's probably not going to have much of an effect on Michael Thomas, maybe a little bit, but not much. Whereas um, if you were, you know, if, you know, if you're betting on Latavius Murray and Alvin Kamara gets hurt, that's going to have a big effect. Yeah. So, I think understanding which way it can go, but I mean, you know, these, if you look at sort of the, the effect of an injury, I mean, well, actually what I did this past year, um, I remember modeling out like having a series of wide receiver projections for like target shares based on if, if um, for, for the Super Bowl, if a particular receiver was injured. Hmm. So it would be, if, you know, number one receiver is injured, this is number, you know, uh, and, and and then I would basically, and then I tried to assign a probability of this particular injury happening mm-hmm. and then said, okay, well, let's assume it happens. Um, I, let's, I'll assume it happens halfway through the game, just to just, you know, cause this is a very basic thing I was doing. And so then I literally ran simulations with these different, with these different like injury factors and then basically weighted them a certain amount. So um, to try to get a better sense, but it's still, I mean, it, it's, it's very inexact. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that if I had to do, if I was doing this for every single NFL, like NFL game, I would, you know, I wouldn't sleep ever. Like, yeah. And I wanted to make the point too, that like Rufus said, he's not betting player props at all until the Super Bowl, And that's one of the reasons that the lines are so exploitable in props is because um, the limits are so low that a lot of people like Rufus aren't even messing around with them. Uh, so again, you know, I know you talked about it last time. I talk about it all the time. I think a great introduction for fantasy players, if they want to get into sports betting and actually have a chance to win is to, is to bet props. And honestly, fantasy players have just like, I mean, especially good DFS players have like such a better feel for context of a situation and for medium projections. than I think a lot of other people do. So yeah, I still, I still love player props. Um, yeah, player props, uh, you know, I, I was betting player props before I developed you know, before, like that was the first, first thing I bet. Um, I got to ask you, I know, you know, Josh Hermsmeyer, Frisco Josh, he works with us here at ETR, very opinionated, uh, but he often has, uh, I think, really good data and uh, math to back it up. And one of his hottest takes that he ever spit out was that he, he went with the big headline that got everybody's attention. Defense doesn't matter. That's not actually what he was saying. What he was saying is that when you are trying to project offensive players for a single week, he has not been able to find uh, any model or data that shows that in a single game, when you're doing an offensive player's projection, that the matchup actually matters because a, there's so much randomness in a single game and, and B, because we don't actually know who the good defenses are until like, you know, week 12, week 13, week 14, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Do you buy this notion that defense is overrated when it comes to projecting player performance? Oh, um, sort of yes. And no, I mean, I think defense, like, 
in terms of obviously in terms of projecting a game defense does matter. And I think that like there is a lot more, uh, but for fantasy, I mean, there's so many other things that sort of dwarf that, right? Like game flow and all these other things. So um, I agree that, you know, just saying, you know, yeah. Um, And and overall, I mean, so overall I I agree with the, with the gist of it. Um, I think that, I do think it does matter a little. I mean, if you said, okay, well, it doesn't matter in an individual game, but it matters for a whole season. Well, if it matters for a whole season, then it does matter for an individual game, right? I mean, because a, ga- a season is a, is the sum of 16 games. Sure. Um, I, I just think, but you're right. It, it, it is hard to, especially early in the season, yeah, it's it's hard to project. There's going to be a lot of regression to the mean in a lot of this stuff. I mean, I've looked at, it's, it's you know, um, I don't know if you looked at, um, you know, wide receiver going up or this team going up against number one wide receivers and things like that. I mean, I think there's a ton of noise and that kind of yeah. thing. Um, the matchup stuff, I mean, it is hard because the matchup stuff is, is, is very different from team to team because you have certain teams that are going to say, um, this is the way we play. We're going to ram it down your throat um, regardless of what you do. Um, and other teams say, okay, we're going to game plan to take away the, the strength of the other team. And maybe, you know, if you're looking at data, it says, this team's really good against number one wide receivers. Maybe that's because they gear up to stop the other team's best player, but this other, this team happens to you know have a tight end that's better. So in, in a weaker number one receiver. So like, I mean, I think, um, yeah, you can go into a lot of detail. Um, but overall, I, I agree with the point in, in general. Um, I, I don't want to go on record saying that um, I agree with everything about it, but <laughs> Yeah, well, one thing I'll say is that we know for sure that defense's stats uh, are not as sticky year to year as offenses. You know what I mean? Like just because the team was great on defense last year is not nearly as sticky as offense being great year to year. So that's something I try to be conscious of uh, as well, for sure. Right. And the other thing is, I think you have some competing effects. So let's say you play a team. You, you, let's say you play a, a, a good defense, a, a team that's a good, a good team, like and you um, if you're playing, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought here a little bit, but if you're, um, game script matters a lot. And I think there's a correlation between game script and quality of a team in a way too. Sure. I mean, if, if, you know, if you're playing from behind, if you're playing against a good defense, but playing from behind, you're going to, you know, be airing the ball out a lot. You're going to be getting more yards, you know, per play just because you're going to be throwing the ball more. Right. Sure. So, I mean, I think if, yeah, I think it would be interesting is to sort of, if you control for sort of those correlations there, um, how does it look? Yeah, for sure. All right. I, I want to uh, get your take before we get to listener questions. I want to get your take on how like the public, not people who have simulations, not people who have models, just how the public can bet sides more reasonably. And I think what we, it's easy for to tell people, Hey, just bet straight sides and you can't lose too much, you know, just bet, you know, the closing line on, on pinnacle. And, and if you can beat that, if you can find a number that's, that's off of that and you bet that, yeah, that's great. But that's not really what people want, right? They don't want to like turn $110 into a hundred, right? That's not what people uh, who are just betting for fun really want. And that's why people love the Millie Maker on DraftKings. They want to turn 20 into a million. That's why they, they want to bet parlays and stuff. It doesn't matter how much you tell them and it's statistically bad. They still want to do it because it's just for fun, right? So is there anything we can say to people like, hey, I'm going to bet parlays. Is there anything we can say to say, hey, uh, here's how you could bet parlays more efficiently. And here's maybe some other things that, that you need to know that we're, you know, I can just kind of, I know that I'm kind of being a donkey, but it's fun. And I just want to not be as bad. Well, parlays, so parlays are interesting because they're not necessarily like bad. Um, 
in and of themselves. I mean, assuming that books aren't, um, aren't, well, I mean, assuming that you're getting the, the full payout is it should be multi, you know, multiplied out, meaning that, um, you know, if you're, if you have a two team, teamer minus minus one ten that you're getting like plus two sixty four or point whatever, not, and they're not rounding it down. Right. Um, but overall what a parlay is just going to do is it's going to magnify the house's edge or your edge. And so if you have an 18 parlay, like, I mean, it, it's just, it, it's very unlikely that you have an edge overall with all eight of those bets. Right. And so, I mean, I do think you're right. I mean, I don't think a $5 parlay better. Um, the question is someone that's betting like a $5 parlay, if they, if parlays weren't available, would they be betting more on a side bet? I don't know. Um, but I do agree that people love the lottery mentality. And so yeah. I, I think that um, the problem is it's, it, you know, a, if you have an edge on each of the legs of a parlay on each bet, um, a parlay is going to be your best EV solution. Um, Cause it's, it's, it's the magic of compounding essentially. Sure. Um, but it is just, it, you know, with the, the odds that a recreational better has an edge overall um, on, on eight particular bets um, is just, is very low. Um, and so as a result, you end up with this bet, which with where, where uh, the house edge gets compounded. And so it's like, you know, I think an 18 was like what, 40% or something like that. Um, um, ROI for the, for the house. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I think just think about it that way. Um, and so if you're really confident on something, um, I mean, let's say, I, I think maybe a better way to do it, you know, if, if there's fewer things you have to be right about, like, let's say you just have, let's say you parlay two underdogs on the money line. You don't, you know, I mean, I think there's probably more of a chance that you have an edge on both of those than that you have an edge on eight separate legs um, yeah. of a parlay. But um, so I guess just be cognizant of the fact that, that um, you are compounding whether your own edge or the house edge, which, whichever one it is um, when you're parlaying. But sure. in terms of, in ter also in terms of um, someone who's not running simulations and all that stuff, what they can do to be better. I mean, it's hard. The NFL side market is quite efficient, mm -hmm. but I mean, I think the biggest thing I would say is sort of be contrarian in your thinking and, and don't fall for the, the narratives um, in a way, look at, I mean, I would, I would say, think about what like your, your, um, your little pea brain wants to do and do the opposite. Yeah. Right. Oh, whatever, whatever the like, talking heads are, if the talking heads exactly. are ta like hyping up something, be like, well, do I really believe that? Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe the hype is greater than the reality. Yeah. I, I always say like, if I went to a bar and asked a hundred people who's going to win X game on Sunday and they, and 99 of them say one thing for sure, the, the other side is the right side. And, and, you know, that's the whole idea of being contrarian, but I, I don't know, like that gets back into the whole idea of like reverse line movement, which I know you hate and like all this other stuff. That's just, people are trying to figure out what the public side is and what the quote unquote sharp side is. It's just not that simple. Right. So like, I don't know. And I, I feel like yeah. the markets are getting more sophisticated too, where like a lot of times the home dogs are like the fake sharp side, it seems like, you know, like a lot of people think now that home dogs, they think they're super sharp and they're taking all home dogs. I feel like that's gotten less effective as it used to be, you know? Well, in a way, if everybody is doing that, everybody's talking about the home dog is the thing to do, then right. maybe it isn't the thing to do. I'm, yeah. And I'm not talking about the reverse line movement stuff. I'm just talking about the way you think about things. Almost like going into the last season, everybody was hyping up the Browns. They would continue this trend like they were the media darling. Well, yeah. it's like, well, you know, 
maybe what if that's not true? Um, yeah. Well, what do you think about the, the, Bucks? the, the Bu- This year's Bucks are last year's Browns. What do you think about them? Oh, I think the hype's overblown for sure. I mean, I think yeah. Tom, Tom Brady, if you look at QBR last year, Tom Brady um, and Jameis Winston were interchangeable. I think they both, yeah. they, they had the same QBR. Now, I don't know if, um, I'm not saying that Winston is just as good as Brady necessarily, but also he's what, 40, Brady's 42? 43, yeah. 43, he could drop off a cliff at any moment. So yeah, it's, yeah. Personally, I still I still have the the Bucks rated. Um, I have the Bucks rated higher than the Patriots this year, um, yeah. because I haven't figured out how to capture Bill Belichick. Uh, apparently, my like having the quarterbacks in the model, but not a coaching thing. Um, we're we're giving that. I guess in a way, I'm giving the Belichick effect to Brady, right. which isn't. I'm not saying that's right. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how how you know because this offseason you have a lot of a lot of older quarterbacks changing teams, especially. I mean, yeah, that's true. You have rivers going to the Colts. I mean, it's, yeah. it's going to be interesting to see. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Hopefully um, we have a season. Yeah. We did a win totals podcast and I definitely am on bucks under, especially if you can get 10 and, and not lay too much juice, but, but yeah. Um, oh yeah. If you can get 10 under 10, that's great. Like I've, I, I cranked out like the, an initial mass CP body like simulation with, um, cause I'm in New Jersey right now and there's some, you know, opportunities. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to ask you about on, uh, just side betting, like when I first got into like sports, uh, and, and betting and just trying to follow it a little bit, this was like early 2000. Like I felt like home field was underrated by the market. Now it seems like it's swung the other way where maybe home field is actually overrated. And I've heard you mention that about college football and maybe some other things. Have we gone the other way where the market's actually overrating home field now? And do you think games with no fans, how will you adjust to that in your model? I think you're right. I think home field did used to be underrated. I mean, looking back, I remember the research I did um, on lines back in like the nineties and two thousands, all the literature I read back, I I did a literature review on, on um, academic papers on sports betting and how it relates pertains to financial markets um, back in 2007 for an econ professor. And so I, I, feel like I gained a lot of insight into market biases from that. Um, and yeah, um, but you're right. It, home field advantage just in absolute terms has decreased over the years recently. And I think part of that is, you know, travel's easier, um, mm-hmm. the increased professionalization. Um, you don't have, you don't have the, you know, the stadiums are nicer. I'm guessing you don't have um, like Wrigley field visitors, locker room sit like situations as much anymore. Right. Where, mm-hmm. where it's just, like, yeah, the shuttle or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Um, there's that. I mean, travel's gotten easier, all that stuff. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much that will continue. Oh, I think the bigger thing, though, is going to be the fact that you have more accountability for officials. Yeah. I think all these monitoring, like, um, the monitoring of officials and, and the accountability there is really, I think, is a big factor in yeah. decreasing home of advantage because I think a lot of it comes from referee bias. And yeah. I think we're going to see if we have games without fans. Um, personally, I think home field advantage will still be, will be greater than people think. Um, I think you'll, you'll see the officiating bias disappear. It should, if there's no fans in the stands or if there's socially distanced fans, you know, maybe it'll, it'll be mostly disappeared. Um, yeah. But you still have, you still have the whole familiarity aspect, the um, the travel, all that stuff. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but home field advantage, I'm sure you do. Um, home field advantage is 
is stronger early in the game. And that's something that's a phenomenon that exists across sports. If you look at baseball, strongest in the first inning, football, strongest in the first quarter, basketball, strongest in the first quarter. Um, and, and psychological research has shown or has posited, I guess, that it comes from this sort of um, the way your body adjusts to a new environment, to an unfamiliar circumstance, and it takes time to acclimate to it. And then once you do that, then, you know, you're, it, you kind of get to that sort of new normal. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so I, I think, think you, yeah. I think playing in front of your home fans gets you juiced at the start. It's not sustainable to ride that juice for the whole game. But at the start, like guys, I think at home get a, a good juice from their own fans, you know? Um, so that makes sense intuitively for sure. That seems like it. I mean, but if you look at it, I mean, you, if you look at home field advantage and, and there's a lot of people that say, Oh, you know, these teams have a weak home field, but these teams have a stronger home field. And I looked into that. Um, I think it was like five years ago. I actually looked and, and built, you know, sort of it was a mixed effects model to like find these sort of um see if home field really was different um for certain teams than other teams like persistently and i did find that overall there was essentially there was the there was a distribution that it wasn't like that, that had some significance um but the problem was when projecting that into the future um it didn't have any predictive value you could say that in this particular season this or you know this last five years this team has had a home field advantage that is greater and it doesn't, and it seems more than just due to randomness. But if you look at the next year after this or the next five years, it, that doesn't have any predictive power that it's going to continue, which could be an argument for the fact that the, the causes behind a team having a greater home field advantage than another are not, it's not just the stadium or the team. It's, it's, it could be something that is unique to that team in a particular year or years. Maybe it's a hell maybe. Yeah. Um, but, but I tend to think that overall, I mean, it, it's not like just because you're a bad team, your home field advantage is going to be bad. People like right. it, it feels like teams talk about home field advantage much more for good teams. They say, you know, the Saints are eight and no in the Superdome, or you know, and it's all. And but it's it's like, well, yeah, but they're also good away, right? right. And so, and and the Jaguars might not have any fans, but you know, they're still playing at home, um, and. It, it isn't fan. I really believe it's not fans don't aren't causing the home field advantage. And, and I don't know what sort of effect attendance, if there's, I would be interested to know if there's an effect sort of between the rowdiness of a crowd and attendance and that kind of thing on sort of referee bias. That'd yeah. be something very interesting for someone to study because that, that would make a little bit of sense. But, but my guess is that the effect, it's not like a one-to-one type thing, you know? Sure. Yeah. And I also think that there in football, especially like fans can cause more false starts. I think data has shown on the, on the opposing team and stuff like Seattle. that. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's definitely stuff like that. That's unique to football, I think as well. And um, you, but you can model that out. You can say, okay, how much yeah. is a false start worth? Yeah. You know, an EPA and say, sure. okay, well, this is based on false starts. Seattle's home field advantage should be like 0.15 points more or something like that. Yeah. If you want. For so sure. Then you can go deeper and say, well, you know, <laughs> The communication means they're in less optimal plays, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it's never ending. All right. We've gone long enough here without getting to the listener questions. Producer Luke, go ahead and hit the theme music. All right. We're going to do six questions here. Question one comes from Ben Battle. He says, as a better why does Rufus love the pinnacle market setter, high volume, low margin 
model when it eliminates market volatility and forces you more directly to compete with sharps wouldn't you be richer if pinnacle never existed and square books had to originate for themselves i think i know the answer to this but go ahead rufus well i think squares i mean i can't really imagine what it'd be like with squares just originating from themselves i mean it's you're still you're still going to have the same process of price discovery in a way somehow whether there's a pinnacle or not there's going to be some book that moves more aggressively personally i love i like the model um, because it allows me to be able to bet more money in general. And so I think if it was, you know, 10 years ago or 11 or 12 years ago, um, I probably, uh, it, you know, I wouldn't like it as much from just my self-interest because I'd be, you know, if I'm, if I'm betting props and other stuff like that, then yeah. But I think uh, I, I, I would like the opportunity to compete with sharps and to be able to get money down and be, um, yeah, to get more money down and rather than just being limited and being forced to, you know, be, you know, have difficulty trying to, to, to get a big position on an event. Yeah. I mean, just to, to me, it seems obvious like this, if the square books are the ones originating there, that doesn't mean they're going to let Rufus bet. That doesn't mean they're going to let anybody, you know, bet more than $500 or whatever. It doesn't mean they're going to take, yeah, uh, all kinds of action. Um, okay, question yeah. two from Adam. You had a much better answer than I did there. You're right. It's <laughs> it's literally it's not it's not like one or the other. It's like right. You know. Yeah. Uh, uh, question two comes from Noah Rudell. He says, "Does Rufus have his sense of taste back yet after his experience with COVID nineteen? Yeah, Rufus went public. He he was infected with the coronavirus. How's your health, Rufus? Do you have your sense of taste back yet? Um, my health is good, and I do. And I thought, honestly, looking back, I was like, wait, maybe, like, why would I like panned meals that I cooked? I was like, man, this is awful. I don't know why this tastes so bad. And it turns out it wasn't me. So. That's scary, but yeah. Uh, question three comes from Scott Jones. He says, where can we find value in the Champions for Charity golf match? I, I saw the latest line. I'm sure you can find a better line than this, but the latest line I saw uh, on Canby was Tiger Payton minus 195. Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady plus one sixty five. Uh, so, first off, Adam, what is what is our what's the format? Is it skins? I haven't like I have not really looked into it much. It, or no is it idea. is it just? Um, I think it's all. Is it alternate shot? I think the format yeah. will dictate that. I mean, my guess would be in general something like this. If there's a big price, like this, seems to be a fairly big price. Um, you know, I think that there's it's more likely there's value on the dog there, just because there's. I mean, especially after a long layoff um, for Tiger and Phil, I mean, we don't know how much they've been practicing, although I guess Tiger does like live on a golf course. So yeah. I should expect that <laughs> and knowing what I do about, knowing what we do about Tiger's work ethic, um, he's probably been playing. But, but um, the other thing is I think that this is kind of a made for TV event. So I think they, I think the, they want to keep it kind of close. Do you remember the match? Two years ago, I guess it was. No, like, I'm not Tiger, that into, like I'm not that into golf like you guys are, but but yeah. Like Tiger literally like conceded like an eight foot putt to tie the match or something like right. that. It was like it was like they wanted an overtime hole. And so uh, that I would mean, kill me that would oh. kill me so hard if I bet it. Yeah. So I mean, I think there's other things there. And and I mean, I don't know who's better between Peyton Manning or Tom Brady. I mean, but uh, I'm probably not gonna be betting it. But yeah. If I <laughs> I, I would say that I would guess that the plus 165 had value um, or more value than minus 195. Sure. Uh, question four comes from friend of the show, Thomas Fuller. He says, 
what is currently the most efficient way to make money betting on the NFL? I think that's kind of a loaded question because it depends what your bankroll is, how much exactly. if you're a professional, et cetera, et cetera. But, but yeah, you can answer this however you want. The most efficient way to make money betting on the NFL right now. I was going to say what's efficient. Yeah, exactly what you're going to say. What's efficient um, is going to be different uh, for different people and it depends on how you define it. If, if efficiency is dollars earned per hour spent, for me, it's more efficient to focus on betting like full game stuff. Yeah. Um, if it's highest ROI, you know, looking at small markets and props makes sense. Um, yeah. So I, I would say if you have a, if you have a smaller bankroll, I'd, fo you know, focusing on props and derivative type bets and things like that um, makes the most sense. If you have, yeah, if you have, well, I don't think it, if you, had a, if, you, if you have a larger bankroll and are limited and can't bet the props and all that stuff, then, I mean, I guess the other alternative is betting on sides and totals, right? Yeah, I guess so. Or or, or playing DFS where, uh, you know. Oh, good point. You, you won't be limited, but yeah, I'm, I don't. <laughs> so, wait, wait, before we move on, Adam, what is, actually, you, you can answer this after the podcast if you'd like, um, but I'm curious what are, you know, the, 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 the best DFS players, like for tournaments, like what is their expectation, um, like ROI yeah. on an entry? Oh yeah, so I've talked about this a ton. And when you were talking about, I meant to bring this up when you were talking about, uh, you know, like the touts and exposing them. And, and I've like been so transparent with my results. Like I tried to post them and not because like, uh, you know, I want to show or it doesn't, I post them literally so people know like somebody like me who's trying really, really, really hard what a realistic ROI is. And like for me, uh, in cash, you know, I've ranged anywhere from like 8% up to like 18% uh, over the last few years. I think the best players uh, in tournaments can generate a little bit more than that. But also, you know, people are playing incredible amounts of volume. I think I've seen really good players post like 10% ROIs and stuff like that. And so like, yeah, when somebody comes, my point is like, to show that is when somebody comes and tells you that like, you know, we're going to make 80%, it's like, in, they're just straight lying. I, that was the point you were trying to make too about all the sports betting touts saying I've gone 49 and one in my last 50 plays. Like anybody, like people like me and you trying to say what our results are, not to brag or anything, just to say, this is what's realistic. I think it makes a difference, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me looking at, I mean, you have people that are really successful, like the Chalupa or Chipotle brothers or whatever yeah. it is um, that, you know, and I, I always wonder how much of that, like, I'm sure they're very good. Uh, I, I always wonder like how much of it is variance versus how much of it is, is actually skill. Right. Yeah. I mean, cause if you're like, if you look at the person, if you look, let's say if you, if you found the top DFS player of the year, I don't care what year it is. Like I would anticipate the next year, their ROI was going to be worse. Right. I mean, yeah. just because, you know, if you're only, if you're looking at the extremes, it's likely that there, there was a, a lot of positive variance in general. Yeah. So. so one way to look at it in DFS, if you're a tournament player, would be like, how many times did I give myself a chance to get first place in a tournament? In other words, how many times was I in the 0 0.01 or the 0.1 top percent of a tournament? And whether I got first is going to be a huge difference between first, second, third, fourth, fifth. But how many times did I get myself into a position to be in like the top 10 in one of these tournaments? And sure. I think I mean, that would be a more realistic way. Yeah, the way the payouts are structured, there's just so much variance in the right. tournament play. But 8 to 18% for cash games seems seems quite good. Yeah. And I'm also game selecting really hard too. You know, I'm not like taking on all, I'm taking all on all comers and head to head, but I'm not playing like the high stakes 50 fifties and stuff like that. playing the 25 cent ones? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. That's where the ROI is probably, right? Probably. That, no, that's no. probably going to be your most efficient way on an ROI basis, right? 
for sure. Um, okay. Uh, question five from John Morgan. He says, what's your process when creating NFL season simulations? Is it feasible to simulate an individual NFL game to support betting decisions? And are there other quantitative methods besides simulation to determine soft lines? So I'll start with the middle question, I guess. Um, I think it is feasible, but very difficult to simulate an NFL game. I know that there are people that do that. There's people that like we're simulating on the level of like left tackle versus defensive end mm-hmm. matchup, like who wins that block. Um, I do not do that. I don't simulate individual games. Um, I mean, I, I simulate beyond just simulating the outcome, like the, the actual score differential. Um, for season simulations. So my process for season simulations is that I have my expectation going to the game. I, you know, I flip a, you know, unfair coin or whatever with the probability, like I end up, or I end up sampling from a distribution of potential outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I adjust, I record the result and adjust team ratings based off of that with a lot of uncertainty there. Basically I'm modeling the dynamic um, nature of team ratings. You know, you could, you could be a, um, three point favorite and win a game by seven, but still end up ha- like having, have your rate. You could still end up having your rating get slightly worse. Maybe if sure. you won the turnover battle four to nothing or something like that, or you could, you know, have your rating, your team's rating really improve. So, I mean, I think the biggest thing is understanding that sort of dynamic uncertainty um, and modeling that in is super important. Um, so that's, that's my process for NFL simulations. And obviously keeping track of all the, well, the hard part is um, the intensive part is keeping track of all these like, you know, common you know, record against common opponents and all that stuff. You have to, each simulation have to record all that stuff to be able to handle those tiebreakers. Sure. Um, are there other quantitative methods to determine soft lines? Um, yes, definitely. I don't think it's just simulation. I think you can, you can do a lot in terms of um, just using statistical inference and just building models too. And cool. That's what I'm doing. I'm building models and then simulating based on the models. Right. All right. Last question. We're going to let Rufus, Rufus go after this from A. Burke 9580. Were his parents actually awesome enough to name him Rufus Peabody or is that just a stage name? Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, I've, I don't know how many times people have told, thought, well, told me how surprised they are that it's actually my real name. And my parents' friends apparently tried to, t- like, they had an stage an intervention to try to talk <laughs> them out of naming me Rufus. But I'm, I'm very happy to be Rufus Peabody on my birth certificate and everything. There you go. Congratulations. All right. Uh, we learned a lot here today. Really appreciate your time. Tell the people where they can find you, what you're working on, anything else you want to say. Um, we ha- uh, You can find uh, my podcast, which uh, Jeff Ma and I co-host called Bet the Process, wherever you get your podcasts. We release that once a week during the NFL season and generally once a week, once every two weeks-ish during the off season where we have guests. Um, Let's see, Twitter, I'm at Rufus Peabody, though I've been kind of quiet there recently, trying to be more productive, you know. <laughs> and that's, uh, yeah, that's what's what about going the, on. Any, any update on the coalition? The coalition, yeah. Now, um, yeah, American Betters Coalition, it, we are kind of um, on pause a little bit right now. We, we aren't doing any, um, we're not launching. We're still, um, we're kind of waiting until uh, sports pick up and, and, you know, we're in a better economic situation before we, you know, before we actually do an official launch, because like any nonprofit, we need money to, to actually be able to run. 
And I don't think most operators right now are don't and other parties don't really have the money for that. But we, um, you can visit our. I got to remember what our website is. Actually, I think it's American Betters, <laughs> American Betters Coalition. Um, dot com. No dot org. Hold on. I don't want to, I'm literally Googling it right now. I should know this. AmericanBettersCoalition.org. There you go. .org. There you um, go. And we have a Twitter, I think, um, which is at American Better, I believe. These are cool. things I should know, but it's been, it's been a while. Um, so, and, and there's a form on, on the American Betters Coalition site um, where uh, to sort of stay in touch. And, and also, um, if you're interested in volunteering, um, where we'd love for you to fill it out and let us know what you're interested in, what your skill sets are and all that stuff. And so once yeah. we get going, um, I mean, American betters coalition is literally, I mean, it's, we want to be the sort of the voice of, of sports betters in the legal and uh, in, in the legal sports betting ecosystem. And, you know, cause right now um, the people writing the legislation are not really, I mean, they're, they're being lobbied by, by uh, these B2Bs, by operators, by leagues. Um, but nobody's really there representing, us the better and this is not contrary to what some people think this is not an association for professional betters or anything like that it's literally it's it's about um it's about creating laws and um that are fair for betters um that respect um well that the, yeah problem gamblers that that do not take advantage of them and that um that are fair to everybody yeah no it sounds like good good cause and i hope uh wish you a lot of luck with it because you're right. The actual betters are severely underrepresented in this process as sports betting spreads across the United States. All right. Follow Rufus on Twitter, listen to bet the process, join the coalition, et cetera, et cetera. Rufus, thank you for your time for Rufus, for producer Luke. I am Adam. Good luck, everybody. Mm -hmm.